This episode of Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Wooly Bull Highland Cow Slippers. They're shaggy, fun slippers that you can wear around your house. Trust me, they look like they dust as I walk. I've, I've left a path definitely from the studio to, uh, to the kitchen. Anyway, BunnySlippers.com. This month we will be continuing with more W.B. Du Bois, and we will be listening to The Souls of Black Folk, which is a nonfiction piece, a historical piece, a piece of uh, historical fact. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's There's some music in here. And not by me, I didn't score any of this, but enjoy The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Here we go. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 8 Of the Quest of the Golden Fleece But the brute said in his breast Till the mills I grind have ceased The riches shall be dust of dust Dry ashes be the feast On the strong and cunning few Cynic favors I will strew I will stuff their maw with overplus until their spirit dies. From the patient and the low, I will take the joys they know. They shall hunger after vanities and still and hungered go. Madness shall be on the people. Ghastly jealousies arise. Brother's blood shall cry on brother up the dead and empty skies. William Vaughan Moody Have you ever seen a cotton field white with harvest? Its golden fleece hovering above the black earth like a silvery cloud edged with dark green, its bold white signals waving like the foam of billows from Carolina to Texas across that black and human sea. I have sometimes half suspected that here the winged ram Chrysomalus left that fleece after which Jason and his Argonauts went vaguely wandering into the shadowy east 3,000 years ago and certainly one might frame a pretty and not far-fetched analogy of witchery and dragon's teeth and blood and armed men between the ancient and the modern quest of the golden fleece in the Black Sea. And now the golden fleece is found, not only found, but in its birthplace woven, for the home of the cotton mills is the newest and most significant thing in the New South today. All through the Carolinas and Georgia, away down to Mexico, rise these gaunt red buildings, bare and homely, and yet so busy and noisy withal that they scarce seem to belong to the slow and sleepy land. Perhaps they sprang from dragon's teeth. So the cotton kingdom still lives, the world still bows beneath her scepter. Even the markets that once defied the parvenu have crept one by one across the seas, and then slowly and reluctantly but surely have started toward the black belt. To be sure, there are those who wag their heads knowingly and tell us that the capital of the cotton kingdom has moved from the black to the white belt, that the Negro of today raises not more than half of the cotton crop. Such men forget that the cotton crop has doubled and more than doubled since the era of slavery, and that even granting their contention, the Negro is still supreme in a cotton kingdom larger than that on which the Confederacy builded its hopes. So the Negro forms today one of the chief figures in a great world industry, and this, for its own sake and in light of historic interest, makes the field hands of the cotton country 
worth studying. We seldom study the condition of the Negro today honestly and carefully. It is so much easier to assume that we know it all, or perhaps, having already reached conclusions in our own minds, we are loath to have them disturbed by facts. And yet how little we really know of these millions, of their daily lives and longings, of their homely joys and sorrows, of their real shortcomings and the meaning of their crimes. All this we can only learn by intimate contact with the masses, and not by wholesale arguments covering millions separate in time and space, and differing widely in training and culture. Today, then, my reader, let us turn our faces to the black belt of Georgia and seek simply to know the condition of the black farm laborers of one county there. Here in 1890 lived 10,000 Negroes and 2,000 whites. The country is rich, yet the people are poor. The keynote of the black belt is debt, not commercial credit, but debt in the sense of continued inability on the part of the mass of the population to make income cover expense. This is the direct heritage of the South from the wasteful economies of the slave regime, but it was emphasized and brought to a crisis by the emancipation of the slaves. In 1860, Doherty County had 6,000 slaves, worth at least two and a half millions of dollars. Its farms were estimated at three millions, making five and a half millions of property, the value of which depended largely on the slave system and on the speculative demand for land, once marvelously rich, but already partially devitalized by careless and exhaustive culture. The war then meant a financial crash. In place of the five and a half millions of 1860, they remained in 1870 only farms valued at less than two millions. With this came increased competition in cotton culture from the rich lands of Texas. A steady fall in the normal price of cotton followed from about 14 cents a pound in 1860 until it reached 4 cents in 1898. Such a financial revolution was it that involved the owners of the cotton belt in debt. And if things went ill with the master, how fared it with the man? The plantations of Doherty County in slavery days were not as imposing and aristocratic as those of Virginia. The big house was smaller and usually one-storied and sat very near the slave cabins. Sometimes these cabins stretched off on either side like wings, sometimes only on one side forming a double row or edging the road that turned into the plantation from the main thoroughfare. The form and disposition of the laborers' cabins throughout the Black Belt is today the same as in slavery days. Some live in the self-same cabins, others in cabins rebuilt on the sites of the old. All are sprinkled in little groups over the face of the land, centering about some dilapidated big house where the head tenant or agent lives. The general character and arrangement of these dwellings remains on the whole unaltered. There were in the county outside the corporate town of Albany about 1,500 Negro families in 1898. Out of these, only a single family occupied a house with seven rooms. Only 14 have five rooms or more. The mass live in one- and two-room homes. The size and arrangements of a people's homes are no unfair index of their condition. If, then, we inquire more carefully into these Negroes' homes we find much that is unsatisfactory. All over the face of the land is the one-room cabin, now standing in the shadow of the big house, now staring at the dusty road, now rising dark and somber amid the green of cotton fields. It is nearly always old and bare, built of rough boards and neither plastered nor sealed. Light and ventilation are supplied by the single door and by the square hole in the wall with its wooden shutter. There is no glass, porch, or ornamentation without. Within is a fireplace, black and smoky, and usually unsteady with age. A bed or two, a table, a wooden chest, and a few chairs compose the furniture, while a stray showbill or a newspaper makes up the decorations for the walls. Now and then one may find such a cabin kept scrupulously neat, with merry steaming fireplaces and hospitable door, but the majority are dirty and dilapidated, smelling of eating and sleeping, poorly ventilated, and anything but homes. 
Above all, the cabins are crowded. We have come to associate crowding with homes in cities almost exclusively. This is primarily because we have so little accurate knowledge of country life. Here in Doherty County, one may find families of eight and ten occupying one or two rooms, and for every ten rooms of house accommodation for the Negroes, there are twenty-five persons. The worst tenement abominations of New York do not have above twenty-two persons for every ten rooms. Of course, one small, close room in a city without a yard is in many respects worse than the larger, single country room. In other respects, it is better. It has glass windows, a decent chimney, and a trustworthy floor. The single great advantage of the Negro peasant is that he may spend most of his life outside his hovel in the open fields. There are four chief causes of these wretched homes. First, long custom born of slavery has assigned such homes to Negroes. White laborers would be offered better accommodations and might, for that and similar reasons, give better work. Second, the Negroes, used to such accommodations, do not as a rule demand better. They do not know what better houses mean. Thirdly, the landlords, as a class, have not yet come to realize that it is a good business investment to raise the standard of living among labor by slow and judicious methods, that a Negro laborer who demands three rooms and fifty cents a day would give more efficient work and leave a larger profit than a discouraged toiler herding his family in one room and working for thirty cents. Lastly, among such conditions of life, there are few incentives to make the laborer become a better farmer. If he is ambitious, he moves to town or tries other labor. As a tenant farmer, his outlook is almost hopeless, and following it as a makeshift, he takes the house that is given him without protest. In such homes, then, these Negro peasants live. The families are both small and large. There are many single tenants, widows and bachelors, and remnants of broken groups. The system of labor and the size of the houses both tend to the breaking up of family groups. The grown children go away as contract hands or migrate to town. The sister goes into service. And so one finds many families with hosts of babies and many newly married couples, but comparatively few families with half-grown and grown sons and daughters. The average size of Negro families has undoubtedly decreased since the war, primarily from economic stress. In Russia, over a third of the bridegrooms and over half of the brides are under 20. The same was true of the antebellum Negroes. Today, however, very few of the boys and less than a fifth of the Negro girls under 20 are married. The young men marry between the ages of 25 and 35, the young women between 20 and 30. Such postponement is due to the difficulty of earning sufficient to rear and support a family, and it undoubtedly leads in the country district to sexual immorality. The form of this immorality, however, is very seldom that of prostitution, and less frequently that of illegitimacy than one would imagine. Rather, it takes the form of separation and desertion after a family group has been formed. The number of separated persons is 35 to the thousand, a very large number. It would, of course, be unfair to compare this number with divorce statistics, for many of these separated women are, in reality, widowed, were the truth known. And in other cases, the separation is not permanent, Nevertheless, here lies the seat of greatest moral danger. There is little or no prostitution among these Negroes, and over three-fourths of the families, as found by house-to-house -house investigation, deserve to be classed as decent people with considerable regard for female chastity. To be sure, the ideas of the mass would not suit New England, and there are many loose habits and notions. Yet the rate of illegitimacy is undoubtedly lower than in Austria or Italy, and the women as a class are modest. The plague spot in sexual relations is easy marriage and easy separation. This is no sudden development, nor the fruit of emancipation. It is the plain heritage from slavery. In those days, Sam, with his master's consent, took up with Mary. No ceremony was necessary, and in the busy life of the great plantations of the Black Belt, it was usually dispensed with. 
If now the master needed Sam's work in another plantation or in another part of the same plantation, or if he took a notion to sell the slave, Sam's married life with Mary was usually unceremoniously broken, and then it was clearly to the master's interest to have both of them take new mates. This widespread custom of two centuries has not been eradicated in thirty years. Today, Sam's grandson takes up with a woman without license or ceremony. They live together decently and honestly, and are to all intents and purposes man and wife. Sometimes these unions are never broken until death. But in too many cases, family quarrels, a roving spirit, a rival suitor, or perhaps more frequently the hopeless battle to support a family, leads to separation and a broken household is a result. The Negro Church has done much to stop this practice, and now most marriage ceremonies are performed by the pastors. Nevertheless, the evil is still deep-seated, and only a general raising of the standard of living will finally cure it. Looking now at the county black population as a whole, it is fair to characterize it as poor and ignorant. Perhaps 10% compose the well-to-do and the best of the laborers, while at least 9% are thoroughly lewd and vicious. The rest, over 80%, are poor and ignorant, fairly honest and well-meaning, plodding, and to a degree shiftless, with some but not great sexual looseness. Such class lines are by no means fixed. They vary, one might almost say, with the price of cotton. The degree of ignorance cannot easily be expressed. We may say, for instance, that nearly two-thirds of them cannot read or write. This but partially expresses the fact. They are ignorant of the world about them, of modern economic organization, of the function of government, of individual worth and possibilities, of nearly all those things which slavery in self-defense had to keep them from learning. Much that the white boy imbibes from his earliest social atmosphere forms the puzzling problems of the black boy's mature years. America is not another word for opportunity to all her sons. It is easy for us to lose ourselves in details in endeavoring to grasp and comprehend the real condition of a mass of human beings. We often forget that each unit in the mass is a throbbing human soul. Ignorant it may be, and poverty-stricken, black and curious in limb and ways and thoughts, and yet it loves and hates, it toils and tires, it laughs and weeps its bitter tears, and looks in vague and awful longing at the grim horizon of its life. All this even as you and I. These black thousands are not in reality lazy. They are improvident and careless. They insist on breaking the monotony of toil with a glimpse at the great town world on Saturday. They have their loafers and their rascals, but the great mass of them work continuously and faithfully for a return. And under circumstances that would call forth equal voluntary effort from few, if any, other modern laboring class. Over 80% of them, men, women, and children, are farmers. Indeed, this is almost the only industry. Most of the children get their schooling after the crops are laid by, and very few there are that stay in school after the spring work has begun. Child labor is to be found here in some of its worst phases, as fostering ignorance and stunting physical development. With the grown men of the county, there is little variety in work. 1,300 are farmers, and 200 are laborers, teamsters, etc., including 24 artisans, 10 merchants, 21 preachers, and 4 teachers. This narrowness of life reaches its maximum among the women. 1,350 of these are farm laborers. 100 are servants and washerwomen, leaving 65 housewives, 8 teachers, and 6 seamstresses. Among this people, there is no leisure class. We often forget that in the United States, over half the youth and adults are not in the world earning incomes, but are making homes, learning of the world, or resting after the heat of strife. But here, 96% are toiling. No one with leisure to turn the bare and cheerless cabin into a home. No old folks to sit beside the fire and hand down traditions of the past. Little of careless, happy childhood and dreaming youth. The dull monotony of daily toil 
is broken only by the gaiety of the thoughtless and the Saturday trip to town. The toil, like all farm toil, is monotonous, and here there are little machinery and few tools to relieve its burdensome drudgery. But with all this, it is work in the pure open air, and this is something in a day when fresh air is scarce. The land on the whole is still fertile, despite long abuse. For nine or ten months in succession the crops will come, if asked. Garden vegetables in April, grain in May, melons in June and July, hay in August, sweet potatoes in September, and cotton from then to Christmas. And yet on two-thirds of the land there is but one crop, and that leaves the toilers in debt. Why is this? Away down the Basin Road, where the broad, flat fields are flanked by great oak forests, is a plantation, many thousands of acres it used to run, here and there, and beyond the great wood. Thirteen hundred human beings, here obeyed the call of one, were his, in body and largely in soul. One of them lives there yet, a short, stocky man, his dull brown face seamed and drawn, and his tightly curled hair gray-white. The crops? Just tolerable, he said, just tolerable. Getting on? No. He wasn't getting on at all. Smith of Albany furnishes him, and his rent is 800 pounds of cotton. Can't make anything at that. Why didn't he buy land? Huh. Takes money to buy land, and he turns away. Free. The most piteous thing amid all the black ruin of wartime, amid the broken fortunes of the masters, the blighted hopes of mothers and maidens, and the fall of an empire. The most piteous thing amid all this was the black freedman who threw down his hoe because the world called him free. What did such a mockery of freedom mean? Not a cent of money, not an inch of land, not a mouthful of victuals, not even ownership of the rags on his back. Free. On Saturday, once or twice a month, the old master before the war used to dole out bacon and meal to his negroes. And after the first flush of freedom wore off, and his true helplessness dawned on the freedmen, he came back and picked up his hoe, and old master still doled out his bacon and meal. The legal form of service was theoretically far different. In practice, task work, or cropping, was substituted for daily toil in gangs, and the slave gradually became a metayer, or tenant on shares, in name, but a laborer with indeterminate wages in fact. Still the price of cotton fell, and gradually the landlords deserted their plantations, and the reign of the merchant began. The merchant of the black belt is a curious institution, part banker, part landlord, part banker, and part despot. His store, which used most frequently to stand at the crossroads and became the center of a weekly village, has now moved to town and thither the negro tenant follows him. The merchant keeps everything, clothes and shoes, coffee and sugar, pork and meal, canned and dry goods, wagons and plows, seed and fertilizer. And what he has not in stock, he can give you an order for at the store across the way. Here then comes the tenant, Sam Scott. After he has contracted with some absent landlord's agent for hiring 40 acres of land, he fingers his hat nervously until the merchant finishes his morning chat with Colonel Saunders and calls out, Well, Sam, what do you want? Sam wants him to furnish him, i.e., to advance him food and clothing for the year, and perhaps seed and tools, until his crop is raised and sold. If Sam seems a favorable subject, he and the merchant go to a lawyer, and Sam executes a chattel mortgage on his mule and wagon, in return for seed and a week's rations. As soon as the green cotton leaves appear above the ground, another mortgage is given on the crop. 
Every Saturday, or at longer intervals, Sam calls upon the merchant for his rations. A family of five usually gets about 30 pounds of fat side pork and a couple of bushels of cornmeal a month. Besides this, clothing and shoes must be furnished. If Sam or his family is sick, there are orders on the druggist and doctor. If the mule wants shoeing, an order on the blacksmith, etc. If Sam is a hard worker and crops promise well, he is often encouraged to buy more, sugar, extra clothes, perhaps a buggy. But he is seldom encouraged to save. When cotton rose to ten cents last fall, the shrewd merchants of Doherty County sold a thousand buggies in one season, mostly to black men. The security offered for such transactions, a crop and chattel mortgage, may at first seem slight. And indeed, the merchants tell many a tale of shiftlessness and cheating, of cotton picked at night, mules disappearing, and tenants absconding. But on the whole, the merchant of the black belt is the most prosperous man in the section. So skillfully and so closely has he drawn the bonds of the law about the tenant that the black man has often simply to choose between pauperism and crime. He waives all homestead exemptions in his contract. He cannot touch his own mortgaged crop, which the law has put almost in the full control of the landowner and of the merchant. When the crop is growing, the merchant watches it like a hawk. As soon as it is ready for market, he takes possession of it, sells it, pays the landowner his rent, subtracts his bill for supplies, and if, as sometimes happens, there is anything left, he hands it over to the black serf for his Christmas celebration. End of chapter 8, part 1. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle Chapter 8, Part 2 The direct result of this system is an all-cotton scheme of agriculture and the continued bankruptcy of the tenant. The currency of the black belt is cotton. It is a crop always saleable for ready money, not usually subject to great yearly fluctuations in price, and one which the Negroes know how to raise. The landlord, therefore, demands his rent in cotton, and the merchant will accept mortgages on no other crop. There is no use asking the black tenant, then, to diversify his crops. He cannot, under this system. Moreover, the system is bound to bankrupt the tenant. I remember once meeting a little one-mule wagon on the river road. A young black fellow sat in it, driving listlessly, his elbows on his knees. His dark-faced wife sat beside him, stolid, silent. Hello, cried my driver. He has a most imprudent way of addressing these people, though they seem used to it. What have you got there? Made and meal, answered the man, stopping. The meat lay uncovered in the bottom of the wagon, a great thin side of fat pork covered with salt. The meal was in a white bushel bag. What did you pay for that meat? Ten cents a pound? It could have been bought for six or seven cents cash. And the meal? Two dollars. One dollar and ten cents is the cash price in town. Here was a man paying five dollars for goods which he could have bought for three dollars cash and raised for one dollar or one dollar and a half. Yet it is not wholly his fault. The Negro farmer started behind, started in debt. This was not his choosing, but the crime of this happy-go-lucky nation which goes blundering along with its reconstruction tragedies, its Spanish war interludes and Philippine matinees, just as though God really were dead. Once in debt, it is no easy matter for a whole race to emerge. In the year of low-priced cotton, 1898, out of 300 tenant families, 175 ended their year's work 
in debt to the extent of $14,000. Fifty cleared nothing, and the remaining 75 made a total profit of $1,600. The net indebtedness of the black tenant families of this whole county must have been at least $6,000. In a more prosperous year, the situation is far better, but on the average, the majority of tenants end the year even or in debt, which means that they work for board and clothes. Such an economic organization is radically wrong. Whose is the blame? The underlying causes of this situation are complicated but discernible, and one of the chief, outside the carelessness of the nation, in letting the slaves start with nothing, is the widespread opinion among the merchants and employers of the black belt that only by the slavery of debt can the Negro be kept at work. Without doubt, some pressure was necessary at the beginning of the free labor system to keep the listless and lazy at work, and even today, the mass of the Negro laborers need stricter guardianship than most northern laborers. Behind this honest and widespread opinion, dishonesty and cheating of the ignorant laborers have a good chance to take refuge, and to all this must be added the obvious fact that a slave ancestry and a system of unrequited toil has not improved the efficiency or temper of the mass of black laborers. Nor is this peculiar to Sambo. It has in history been just as true of John and Hans, of Jacques and Pat, of all ground-down peasantries. Such is the situation of the mass of the Negroes in the Black Belt today, and they are thinking about it. Crime and a cheap and dangerous socialism are the inevitable results of this pondering. I see now that ragged black man sitting on a log, aimlessly whittling a stick. He muttered to me with the murmur of many ages when he said, White man sit down a whole year, nigger work day and night and make crop. Nigger hardly gets bread and meat. White man sitting down gets all. is wrong. And what do the better classes of Negroes do to improve their situation? One of two things. If any way possible, they buy land. If not, they migrate to town. Just as centuries ago it was no easy thing for the serf to escape into the freedom of town life, even so today there are hindrances laid in the way of county laborers. In considerable parts of all the Gulf states, and especially in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas, the Negroes on the plantations in the back country districts are still held at forced labor practically without wages. Especially is this true in districts where the farmers are composed of the more ignorant class of poor whites, and the Negroes are beyond the reach of schools and intercourse with their advancing fellows. If such a peon should run away, the sheriff, elected by white suffrage, can usually be depended on to catch the fugitive, return him, and ask no questions. If he escapes to another county, a charge of petty thieving easily true, can be depended on to secure his return. Even if some unduly officious person insists upon a trial, neighborly comity will probably make his conviction sure, and then the labor due the county can easily be bought by the master. Such a system is impossible in the more civilized parts of the South or near the large towns and cities, but in those vast stretches of land beyond the telegraph and the newspaper, the spirit of the Thirteenth Amendment is sadly broken. This represents the lowest economic depths of the black American peasant, and in a study of the rise and condition of the Negro freeholder, we must trace his economic progress from the modern serfdom. Even in the better-ordered country districts of the South, the free movement of agricultural laborers is hindered by the migration agent laws. The Associated Press recently informed the world of the arrest of a young white man in southern Georgia who represented the Atlantic Naval Supplies Company and who was caught in the act of enticing hands from the turpentine farm of Mr. John Greer. The crime for which this young man was arrested is taxed $500 for each county in which the employment agent proposes to gather laborers for work outside the state. Thus, the Negro's ignorance of the labor market outside his own vicinity is increased rather than diminished by the laws of nearly every southern state. 
similar to such measures as the unwritten law of the back districts and small towns of the South, that the character of all Negroes unknown to the mass of the community must be vouched for by some white man. This is really a revival of the old Roman idea of the patron under whose protection the new-made freedman was put. In many instances, this system has been of great good to the Negro, and very often, under the protection and guidance of the former master's family or other white friends, the freedman progressed in wealth and morality. But the same system has in other cases resulted in the refusal of whole communities to recognize the right of a Negro to change his habitation and to be master of his own fortunes. A black stranger in Baker County, Georgia, for instance, is liable to be stopped anywhere on the public highway and made to state his business to the satisfaction of any white interrogator. If he fails to give a suitable answer or seems too independent or sassy, he may be arrested or summarily driven away. Thus it is that in the country districts of the South, by written or unwritten law, peonage, hindrances to the migration of labor, and a system of white patronage exists over large areas. Besides this, the chance for lawless oppression and illegal exactions is vastly greater in the country than in the city, and nearly all the more serious race disturbances of the last decade have arisen from disputes in the count between master and man, as, for instance, the Sam Hose affair. As a result of such a situation, there arose, first, the black belt, and second, the migration to town. The black belt was not, as many assumed, a movement toward fields of labor under more genial climatic conditions. It was primarily a huddling for self-protection, a massing of the black population for mutual defense in order to secure the peace and tranquility necessary to economic advance. This movement took place between emancipation and 1880, and only partially accomplished the desired results. The rush to town since 1880 is the counter-movement of men disappointed in the economic opportunities of the Black Belt. In Doherty County, Georgia, one can see easily the results of this experiment in huddling for protection. Only 10% of the adult population was born in the county, and yet the blacks outnumber the whites four or five to one. There is undoubtedly a security to the blacks in their very numbers, a personal freedom from arbitrary treatment which makes hundreds of laborers cling to Doherty in spite of low wages and economic distress. But a change is coming. And slowly but surely, even here, the agricultural laborers are drifting to town and leaving the broad acres behind. Why is this? Why do not the Negroes become landowners and build up the black landed peasantry which has for a generation and more been the dream of philanthropist and statesman. To the car-window sociologist, to the man who seeks to understand and know the South by devoting the few leisure hours of a holiday trip to unraveling the snarl of centuries, to such men, very often the whole trouble with the black field hand may be summed up by Aunt Ophelia's word, shiftless. They have noted repeatedly scenes like one I saw last summer. We were riding along the highway to town at the close of a long, hot day. A couple of young black fellows passed us in a mule team with several bushels of loose corn in the ear. One was driving, listlessly bent forward, his elbows on his knees, a happy-go-lucky, careless picture of irresponsibility. The other was fast asleep in the bottom of the wagon. As we passed... We noticed an ear of corn fall from the wagon. They never saw it, not they. A rod farther on, we noted another ear on the ground. And between that creeping mule and town, we counted 26 ears of corn. Shiftless? Yes, the personification of shiftlessness. And yet, follow those boys. They are not lazy. Tomorrow morning, they'll be up with the sun. They work hard when they do work, and they work willingly. They have no sordid, selfish, money-getting ways, but rather a fine disdain for mere cash. They'll loaf before your face and work behind your back with good-natured honesty. They'll steal a watermelon and hand you back your lost purse intact. 
Their great defect as laborers lies in their lack of incentive beyond the mere pleasure of physical exertion. They are careless because they have not found that it pays to be careful. They are improvident because the improvident ones of their acquaintance get on about as well as the provident. Above all, they cannot see why they should take unusual pains to make the white man's land better, or to fatten his mule, or save his corn. On the other hand, the white landowner argues that any attempt to improve these laborers by increased responsibility, or higher wages, or better homes, or land of their own, would be sure to result in failure. He shows his northern visitor the scarred and wretched land, the ruined mansions, the worn-out soil and mortgaged acres, and says, This is Negro freedom. Now, it happens that both master and man have just enough argument on their respective sides to make it difficult for them to understand each other. The Negro dimly personifies in the white man all his ills and misfortunes. If he is poor, it is because the white man seizes the fruit of his toil. If he is ignorant, it is because the white man gives him neither time nor facilities to learn. And indeed, if any misfortune happens to him, it is because of some hidden machinations of white folks. On the other hand, the masters and the master's sons have never been able to see why the Negro, instead of settling down to be day laborers for bread and clothes, are infected with a silly desire to rise in the world, and why they are sulky, dissatisfied, and careless where their fathers were happy and dumb and faithful. Why, you niggers have an easier time than I do, said a puzzled Albany merchant to his black customer. Yes, he replied, and so does your hogs. Taking then the dissatisfied and shipless field hand as a starting point, let us inquire how the black thousands of Doherty have struggled from him up toward their ideal, and what that ideal is. All social struggle is evidenced by the rise, first of economic, then of social classes, among a homogeneous population. Today, the following economic classes are plainly differentiated among these Negroes. A submerged tenth of croppers, with a few paupers. Forty percent, who are metayers, and thirty-nine percent of semi-metayers and wage laborers, there are left 5% of money renters and 6% of freeholders, the upper 10 of the land. The croppers are entirely without capital, even in the limited sense of food or money to keep them from seed time to harvest. All they furnish is their labor. The landowner furnishes land, stock, tools, seed, and house. And at the end of the year, the laborer gets from a third to half of the crop. Out of his share, however, comes pay and interest for food and clothing advanced him during the year. Thus, we have a laborer without capital and without wages, and an employer whose capital is largely his employee's wages. It is an unsatisfactory arrangement, both for hirer and hired, and is usually in vogue on poor land with hard-pressed owners. Above the croppers come the great mass of the black population who work the land on their own responsibility, paying rent in cotton and supported by the crop mortgage system. After the war, this system was attractive to the freedmen on account of its larger freedom and its possibility for making a surplus. But with the carrying out of the crop lien system, the deterioration of the land, and the slavery of debt, the position of the metayers has sunk to a dead level of practically unrewarded toil. Formerly, all tenants had some capital, and often considerable. But absentee landlordism, rising rack rent, and failing cotton have stripped them well nigh of all, and probably not over half of them today own their mules. The change from cropper to tenant was accomplished by fixing the rent, if now the rent fixed was reasonable, this was an incentive to the tenant to strive. On the other hand, if the rent was too high, or if the land deteriorated, the result was to discourage and check the efforts of the black peasantry. There is no doubt that the latter case is true. 
that in Doherty County, every economic advantage of the price of cotton in market and of the strivings of the tenant has been taken advantage of by the landlords and merchants and swallowed up in rent and interest. If cotton rose in price, the rent rose even higher. If cotton fell, the rent remained or followed reluctantly. If the tenant worked hard and raised a large crop, his rent was raised the next year. If that year the crop failed, his corn was confiscated and his mule sold for debt. There were, of course, exceptions to this, cases of personal kindness and forbearance. But in the vast majority of cases, the rule was to extract the uttermost farthing from the mass of the black farm laborers. The average metayer pays from 20 to 30 percent of his crop in rent. The result of such rack rent can only be evil, abuse and neglect of the soil, deterioration in the character of the laborers, and a widespread sense of injustice. Wherever the country is poor, cried Arthur Young, it is in the hands of metayers, and their condition is more wretched than that of day laborers. He was talking of Italy a century ago, but he might have been talking of Doherty County today. And especially is that true today, which he declares was true in France before the Revolution. The metayers are considered as little better than menial servants, removable at pleasure, and obliged to conform in all things to the will of the landlords. On this low plain, half the black population of Doherty County, perhaps more than half the black millions of this land, are today struggling. A degree above these, we may place those laborers who receive money wages for their work, some receive a house with perhaps a garden spot, then supplies of food and clothing are advanced, and certain fixed wages are given at the end of the year, varying from 30 to $60, out of which the supplies must be paid for with interest. About 18% of the population belong to this class of semi-metayers, while 22% are laborers paid by the month or year, and are either furnished by their own savings, or perhaps more usually by some merchant who takes his chances of payment. Such laborers receive from 35 to 50 cents a day during the working season. They are usually young, unmarried persons, some being women, and when they marry, they sink to the class of metayers, or more seldom become renters. The renters for fixed money rentals are the first of the emerging classes and form 5% of the families. The sole advantage of this small class is their freedom to choose their crops and the increased responsibility which comes through having money transactions. While some of the renters differ little in condition from the metayers, yet on the whole they are more intelligent and responsible persons and are the ones who eventually become landowners. Their better character and greater shrewdness enable them to gain, perhaps to demand, better terms in rents. Rented farms varying from 40 to 100 acres bear an average rental of about $54 a year. The men who conduct such farms do not long remain renters. Either they sink to metayers or, with a successful series of harvests, rise to be landowners. In 1870, the tax books of Doherty report no Negroes as landholders. If there were any such at the time, and there may have been a few, their land was probably held in the name of some white patron, a method not uncommon during slavery. In 1875, ownership of land had begun with 750 acres. Ten years later, this had increased to over 6,500 acres, to 9,000 acres in 1890 and 10,000 in 1900. The total assessed property has, in this same period, risen from $80,000 in 1875 to $240,000 in 1900. Two circumstances complicate this development and make it, in some respects, difficult to be sure of the real tendencies. They are the Panic of 1893 and the low price of cotton in 1898. Besides this, the system of assessing property in the country districts of Georgia is somewhat antiquated and of uncertain statistical value. There are no assessors, and each man makes a sworn return to a tax receiver. Thus, public opinion plays a large part, and the returns vary strangely from year to year. Certainly these figures show the small amount of accumulated capital among the Negroes and the consequent large dependence of their property on temporary prosperity. They have little to tide over a few years of economic depression and are at the mercy of the cotton market far more than the whites. And thus the landowners, 
despite their marvelous efforts, are really a transient class, continually being depleted by those who fall back into the class of renters or metayers, and augmented by newcomers from the masses. Of 100 landowners in 1898, half had bought their land since 1893, a fourth between 1890 and 1893, a fifth between 1884 and 1890, and the rest between 1870 and 1884. In all, 185 Negroes have owned land in this county since 1875. If all the black landowners who had ever held land here had kept it or left it in the hands of black men, the Negroes would have owned nearer 30,000 acres than the 15,000 they now hold. And yet these 15,000 acres are a creditable showing, a proof of no little weight of the worth and ability of the Negro people. If they had been given an economic start at emancipation, if they had been in an enlightened and rich community which really desired their best good, then we might perhaps call such a result small or even insignificant but for a few thousand poor, ignorant field hands. In the face of poverty, a falling market, and social stress, to save and capitalize $200,000 in a generation has meant a tremendous effort. The rise of a nation, the pressing forward of a social class, means a bitter struggle, a hard and soul-sickening battle with the world such as few of the more favored classes know or appreciate. Out of the hard economic conditions of this portion of the black belt, only 6% of the population have succeeded in emerging into peasant proprietorship, and these are not all firmly fixed but grow and shrink in number with the wavering of the cotton market. Fully 94% have struggled for land and failed, and half of them sit in hopeless serfdom. For these, there is one other avenue of escape toward which they have turned in increasing numbers, namely migration to town. A glance at the distribution of land among the black owners curiously reveals this fact. In 1898, the holdings were as follows. Under 40 acres, 49 families. 40 to 250 acres, 17 families. 250 to 1,000 acres, 13 families. 1,000 or more acres, 2 families. Now, in 1890, there were 42 holdings, but only nine of these were under 40 acres. The great increase of holdings, then, has come in the buying of small homesteads near town where their owners really share in the town life. This is a part of the rush to town, and for every landowner who has thus hurried away from the narrow and hard conditions of country life, how many field hands, how many tenants, how many ruined renters have joined that long procession? Is it not strange compensation? The sin of the country district is visited on the town, and the social sores of city life today may, here in Doherty County, and perhaps in many places near and far, look for their final healing without the city walls. End of chapter 8